Hi there. Thanks for tuning in for session 5 of the 2022 WSC Spotlight Antibiotics and Antivirals: How to Improve Efficacy and Minimize Harm. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers, so without further ado, let me hand it over to Lowell Ling from the Asia Pacific Sepsis Alliance to get us started. Lowell, greetings everyone. Welcome to the fifth session. Um, today we're going to be um, talking about antibiotics and antivirals and how to improve efficacy and how to minimize harm. Uh, my name is Lowell Ling. I'll be your moderator for the session. I'm an intensivist from Hong Kong. And a member of the Asia Pacific Sepsis Alliance, we're really privileged to have five really fantastic speakers with us today, and one especially from Spain, and that is uh, Dr. Alex Soriano, who's going to begin. And we also have Professor Mario Tombarello, a Professor Matteo Bassetti, a Professor Anna Gales, and Professor Mihaela um, Lepsi. We're going to have a broad range of topics, and as you know, we're going to be talking about PKPD. And so, why don't we just jump straight to it? And so, over to you, uh, Dr. Soriano. Dr. Soriano is a consultant uh, of uh, infectious disease at the Hospital Clinic of Barcelona. He is the vice president of the European Bone and Joint Infectious uh, Society. He will be talking about about uh, PK and PD. So, over to you. The PKPD to combat antimicrobial resistance. Uh, this is um, uh, maybe a complex issue, but we will try to. Uh, to summarize the most important uh, aspects, and now imagine that we are uh, in front of a patient that has an ammonia, and in the lung tissue we will find, for example, Pseudomonas, uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and the microbiology says that the MIC of this Pseudomonas is 0.5. But indeed, what happens is that for every one million uh, Pseudomonas, we can find here one that is that is spontaneously resistant. This one, and then, of course, from here, what we are doing is to start an antibiotic treatment, the, in order to achieve a concentration in the soft tissue, in the lung tissue, that it should be uh, at least several times over the MIC, and then we obtain, imagine, three uh, milligrams per liter. And what happens is that we are able to eradicate this uh, susceptible and the majority of the susceptible bacteria. But unfortunately, those that are spontaneously resistant with an MIC of about four milligrams are able to cross this uh, wall that represents the antibiotic that we are, uh, achieve, not the concentration of the antibiotic we achieve in the soft tissue. And then the process is repeated because now this bacteria has no competition and it's able to uh, again duplicate and the process repeated and appear another uh, resistant, uh, spontaneously resistant mutation. And then the microbiologist says, okay, now the MIC is four milligrams. And then we try to increase the antibiotic concentration in the lung tissue. But what happens is that again, the process is repeated and we eliminate the susceptible counterpart, but we select for the resistant again. This picture just uh, is to, uh, to illustrate two important concepts. The first important concept is that the uh, every step and this is a general uh, a general rule yeah uh, there are many uh, aspects to comment on that but as a general rule what we have to understand is that each one of these steps represents in general eight times increase in the MIC from the baseline pathogen. So eight milligrams, uh, uh, sorry, uh, four milligrams here from 0.5, 32 milligrams from here. So this is a first important point. And the second important point is that the way to avoid this uh, process, the way to avoid this uh, problem 
uh, it's easy in the end. What we have to do is to put the highest concentration from the beginning. And by doing so, we are able to eradicate the susceptible pathogens, but also we will uh, uh, be able to avoid the cross of the resistant, the spontaneously resistant pathogen uh, from the beginning. And by doing so, we will avoid this selection of resistance. So from here, these are the, I mean, the concept, yeah? But this concept has at least two definitions that are important for you, for those of you that are interested in reading on this topic of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics to prevent resistance, that are the following. The first one is that we need, as I mentioned, to achieve a concentration that in general is eight to 10 times higher than the MIC to avoid the selection of resistance. And this is valid for aminoglycosides, for quinolones, glycopeptides, daptomycin, but I put in parenthesis for beta-lactams. Uh, I will discuss a little bit uh, uh, farther. But uh, here emerged the first uh, definition that I wanted to introduce to you. That is that the MIC of the, of the first resistant, spontaneous resistant uh, uh, strain is what we know as MPC or mutants selection preventing concentration, MPC. This is the first definition. And the second definition I wanted to introduce is the mutagenic window. The mutagenic window is the concentrations that range from the MIC to the MPC. And this is important because with these two concepts, we can illustrate what happens in my patient according to the dosage, according to the concentration that I achieve in the infection side. If I am achieving a very low concentration below the MIC, we will fail in terms of a clinical cure, and we, but we will not select for resistance if the concentration is below the MIC. If my concentration in the tissue is exactly between the MIC and the MPC, probably we will cure at the beginning the infection, but we will select for a resistant mutant. And then my patient afterwards, when, uh, when had a recurrent infection, it will be due to a resistant uh, uh, pathogen. And finally, the way is to be on top uh, over the MPC in order to avoid the selection of resistance and in addition to cure the infection. And remember that it could happen just in three days of the exposure to the antibiotic. So it's very important to cover from the beginning and to start with a very high antibiotic dosages uh, 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 from, from the first moment to avoid this process. From here, uh, just let, let me introduce some, uh, uh, I would say, um, more, practical, more practical aspects. How to do that? If I have to cover uh, uh, patients with an, an, an MIC of 0.5, that it means that I have to achieve at least four milligrams or uh, even eight milligrams in some occasions, because this is the MPC, then with an antibiotic that I am administering IB, I'm not able to achieve this concentration, we can first combine a second antibiotic with a completely different mechanism of resistance. By doing so, I will avoid the selection. Second, another option is to provide higher concentrations by using different ways of administration, particularly local therapy or inhalation therapy, for example, for ventilator-associated pneumonia. And third, and the most important, remember that the rate of spontaneous resistant mutants is directly related 
with the amount of bacteria. So what we have to do is reduce as much as possible the inoculum and by doing uh, debridement, draining, removing the infected devices, etc. Because by doing so, we will significantly reduce the risk of uh, selecting, uh, selecting resistance. But let me go to the uh, some not not even not only practical but also uh, real uh, circumstances. This is a, a paper published uh, now four years ago, uh, where the authors uh, is is a clinical trial that for sure we all remember comparing ketacinibactam versus meropenem, and I'm going to focus in the meropenem arm. Meropenem was administered at one gram infused in 30 minutes every eight hours, and if we focus in the population, I mean, in the in the inpatients infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, what we will see is that out of the 35 patients that we, that the authors were able to collect consecutive samples, they observed that nine out of these 35 uh, strains develop a four-fold MIC increase for metopenem. So 25% of the uh, patients that receive metopenem, indeed, when it was possible to demonstrate, to evaluate, select for a resistant mutant. So this is something that happens in the daily practice. And uh, what to do? Just let me show you. This is a, a, a guide. This is in Spanish, but it's easy to, to, uh, to use because it's, it's very clear. And uh, here, if we click in the utility, what we can see is, for example, this uh, concentration of serum beta uh, concentration of serum beta lactams. By clicking here, we can modulate, simulate, uh, which is the concentrations that we achieve with a specific antibiotic. For example, we select meropenem. Imagine that the MIC of your pseudomonas is 0 0.5, 0 0.25. So we need to get as a target two milligrams. That it would be uh, the ideal situation to be at least eight times over the MIC, and then we uh, can uh, select the dosage. Imagine the one in the clinical trial, one gram, bolus infusion, I mean, just 30 minutes, every eight hours for a specific weight and for a specific volume of distribution that we can change. And here you can see the outputs. This is the trough serum concentration below the target that we are looking for. And this is the time metopenem remains over the, uh, in this case, the MPC. So if we click here, we are also able to see the uh, graphical uh, uh, simulated con serum concentrations. And it explains why this dosage was associated with uh, uh, a relatively high selection of resistance. Of course, what we have to do is to modify the dosage. We can increase the dosage up to two grams, infuse in four hours instead of 30 minutes, and maintaining exactly the same. The rest, we will see that now the trough serum concentration is 2 milligrams, 100% of the time over the MIC, and this is the output. Uh, and, and if we look at the recent uh, clinical trial comparing cefidorocol versus meropenem, and now meropenem administering two grams, three-hour infusion every eight hours, what we can see again in pseudomonas is that the, using this dosage, the percentage of uh, patients that develop resistance to meropenem was uh, much lower, only 12% in comparison to the 20 5% in the previous paper. And so this means a 50% reduction uh, by changing the dosage that we are using with meropenem. But even in this situation, unfortunately, it was not possible to uh, completely avoid the selection of resistance, probably because some of the strains had an MIC higher, maybe even one, then our target in terms of MPC would be eight. And in order to cover this possibility, what we have to do is to administer the drug in continuous infusion. If we move the courser until here, then it's continuous infusion, the same dose, six grams. And by doing 
so we obtain, of course, 100% of the time of the MIC, but a higher also steady state concentration, as you can see here in this, uh, in this simulated uh, concentrations graph. So just to finish my, my 10 minutes, my take home messages would be that high bacterial population contains spontaneous mutations, and these uh, are particularly common in pneumonia, endocarditis, and in not drain abscesses, that pharmacodynamic uh, uh, targets to predict clinical success are not equivalent to those for preventing selection of resistant mutants, that the MIC of the first resistant mutant is described as the mutant prevention concentration and the PKPD to prevent resistance should be referred to this parameter. But what happens is that microbiologists are not giving us this parameter because it's a little bit complex to elaborate. But remember that for, for quinolones, for aminoglycosides, eight to time, 10 times higher than the MAC would be the correct one. But for beta-lactams, unfortunately, sometimes mutations occur in some points that makes that the MIC, the NPC is so high, more than 64, and then we are not able to protect from the selection of resistance. And in these circumstances, maybe we have to consider for the first two or three days of treatment, this is important. All this is important for the first three days of treatment to combine or to uh, combine with systemic drug or with locally administration of the drug in order to prevent resistance. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Alex Soreno, a fantastic talk. Uh, I'll just fire the questions. One question from the audience is, uh, could you share that program that you showed on, on the phone? Uh, just for yeah. your hospital. I, I will, I will uh, put in the chat if you want. It's, it's, just, it's, it's a program that you can find in the App Store for iPhone or in Android Store. If you, if you write Gia Mensa, I will write in the chat. Uh, and then you can download download it. It's it's uh, for free for the first month, so you can check it. If in the end you like it, it's 90 euro uh, per year. Uh, and you will find not only pharmacokinetics, but you will find everything in infectious diseases. Great. And uh, another question about that fantastic app. Um, how did you measure covariate in the software? Um, covariate, like PK parameters, um, sometimes change with different populations. Yeah, yeah, this is a, a critical point. Of course, uh, the only covariance that you can simulate here, as you can see, is the weight, uh, is the volume of distribution that you can just predict your patient maybe uh, here introduces uh, at the beginning the volume of distribution for the standard population, but then you can change it. And uh, these are the two variants that uh, you can modify. So this is just a simulation to have some idea on what to do. This is not um, uh, um, uh, this is not a software as you can find in the literature. Uh, there are softwares significantly more complex and more and, and significantly better than mine uh, in, in 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 this application. This is just something that could help you to orient uh, which is the circumstance you are you are living. But for more details, you know, do you need to look for other softwares? This is mainly an application where you can find everything in, in, in micro, microorganisms, syndromes, antibiotics, and uh, utilities, different calculators. So it's more than just a software for that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sarina, I have a personal question. So you mentioned in one of your slides that low doses lead to clinical failure of the treatment. 
and also, but also a low likelihood of resistance developing. Could you just take me through sort of the logic of that? I yeah, that. yeah, this, this is a good question. Um, I mean, uh, as I, uh, it's important to understand that when we talk about PKPD for resistance, is just for the risk of selection resistance in the infectious foci, yeah? in, the, in, the, in, the, in the side of the infection. Um, and I'm insistent that because if we expose a population where there is one single bacteria that has an MIC of four and the rest of the bacteria, million bacteria that has an MIC lower, uh, for example, uh, 0.5, but I put the concentration of the antibiotic below 0.5, you are not killing the susceptible bacteria, and so never the resistant one will uh, win because it's necessary to destroy the susceptible one in order to the other one that has a significantly less fitness uh, could overcome and uh, could overgrowth. Yeah. So this is just a concept, but it does not mean that if you uh, administer an antibiotic at very low dosages, in another sites, I mean, in the gut, in the skin flora, you can select for resistance. Yeah, this is another topic that I uh, did not enter because it's uh, too a lot of a lot of questions. Yeah, and a lot of topics uh, for these two minutes. Understand very clear. Uh, one last question. Um, one of the audience asked about toxicity. What sort of risk of balancing sort of such high MICs or, or such drug uh, high drug levels? Um, and how long should you give the antibiotic? Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. Uh, well, for beta-lactams, uh, remember that, uh, and, and is where we have to work more with beta-lactams, are quite safe drugs. Indeed, up to 64 and even higher concentrations, but at least at the 64 are relatively safe. And, and so uh, extended infusions or continuous infusion, uh, for example, to maintain 20 or even 25 or 30 milligrams uh, are quite safe. And the second point, remember that, as I mentioned, is this is for the first two, three days of treatment because the number of resistant bacteria is significantly lower. So with three days, we will be able, if we are doing well, we will be able to uh, kill the resistant bacteria. And from day three, you de-escalate also the dosage, not only the other drugs that you started, but also you de-escalate the dosage. Yeah? So reducing the risk of potential adverse events. For three days, high doses beta-lactam, it's not a big issue in terms of toxicity. Thank you. Um, I think that was a great talk. I'm sure everyone learned a lot about PKPD and uh, AMR uh, development. Uh, thank you again, uh, Dr. Sarino. And next, we're going next, we're going to move to Professor Mario Tombarello, who is Professor of Infectious Disease at the University of Siena. He is an infectious disease consultant, and his topic today is about meropenem barbobactam, which is probably a new weapon coming to your ICU very soon. So over to you. Thanks for the presentation. And the topic of my uh, presentation will be meropenem barbobactam, the, the result of the old meropenem with the new beta-lactamase inhibitor barbobactam. The registrative trial of meropenem barbobactam was based on the urinary tract infections. That is an unusual situation for the new antibiotics against uh, gram negatives. The, the drug has been tested in complicated urinary tract infections, including pleuronephritis, with a comparator 
that was uh, Piptazzo. And based on uh, this registrative trial, the uh, drug has been approved by FDA for complicated urinary tract infections initially. But the most important trial is the, uh, the Tango 2. The Tango 2 is a, a specific trial focused on carbapenem resistant enterobacteriaceae. And the design of the trial is uh, very interesting. The limit of the trial is the number of subjects included. It is less than 50 patients, 32 in meropenem valorbactam and 15 in best available therapy. All the results are in favor to meropenem valorbactam. 15% of mortality for meropenem valorbactam versus 33% for uh, the best available therapy, the clinical cure, and also the renal-related uh, adverse events are all in favor to meropenem valorbactam. All the outcomes are uh, better for meropenem valorbactam than the best available therapy. Meropenem-Valorbactam is a, a spectrum of activity that is uh, the same of the old meropen with the inclusion of the uh, KPC-producing enterobacteriaceae. The drug is not active on the oxenzyme and the uh, metallo-beta-lactamase producers, but is a, a very good drug for the KPC producers. Uh, in this study, uh, including uh, a lot of KPC uh, producing isolates, the, uh, the result is uh, very good for meropenem valorbactam with inhibition in the 99% of isolates. But uh, some paper indicate the possibility to have a, res a resistance to meropenem valorbactam. In this paper, the probability of the resistance is uh, low, but not very low is 8% of the isolates. Is the same that we observed also for ceftazidone-bactam. The diffusion of meropenem valorbactam in the plasma and the, in, the, in the epithelial line fluid is good, is uh, similar in plasma and the epithelial line fluid. If, if we compare the data of ceftazidone-bactam, meropenem valorbactam and imipronolibactam, the uh, health penetration is better for meropenem valorbactam. In this review, uh, consider the difference between ceftazidone-bactam, meropenem valorbactam, and the uh, consideration in favor of one of the uh, over or of the other drug. Of course, none of the drug is a good drug for metallo-metallotamases. Ceftazidone-bactam uh, works on oxenzyme and meropenem valorbactam don't work on, on oxenzyme, but meropenem valorbactam is very strong in the treatment of uh, uh, KPC-producing infections. In addition to the data of real life of uh, the clinical trial, we have the data of real life. Very few uh, data. This is the first one, a case of a, a a transplant, a liver transplanted patient with an access caused by eclipsalia resistant to ceftazidone-bactam successfully treated with meropenem valorbactam. This is a, a report of uh, 20 patients 
with different infections, uh, bacteremia, pneumonia, but also skin and soft tissue infections, intra-abdominal infections, with an overall survival rates of 90%. This is a paper with uh, including 40 patients, clinical success in 70% of patients, mortality in uh, uh, 7.5%. This paper compared ceftazidone bactam with meropenavorbactam, about 100 patients in the ceftazidone bactam group and 26 in the meropenavorbactam group with any significant difference in the outcome between the two drugs. And this is the larger study, uh, including CRA and also uh, pseudomonas. And the result of the of the in, of the meropenavorbactam are good for both the, the infections. And this is the result of the compassionate use of meropenavorbactam in Italy, about uh, 40 patients. Uh, the most important thing is that the outcome of the infection are not related to the susceptibility to ceftazidone In other words, the ceftazidone resistant isolates have the same outcome of the ceftazidone susceptible isolates if treated with meropenavorbactam. And at the end, some word on metallobetalotamesis. As I said, the meropenavorbactam is not active on metalloenzymes, but some experimental studies indicate that meropenavorbactam, in particular vavorbactam, if used with astreonam, has a, a synergistic effect also on metalloenzyme. And based on this, recently a paper has been published treating three patients with ceftazolibactam uh, resistant isolates with meropenavorbactam plus astreonam, and two of these uh, patients has been uh, uh, identified as metallo-beta-lactamase producers. This is probably a, ten a tentative to do a homemade uh, uh, astreonam-vavorbactam, but probably is a, only a disparate uh, resource for a disparate situation. At the end, meropenavorbactam has a strong activity against KPC producing enterobacterialis. PKPD characteristic suggests that, suggests that uh, uh, the possible in a in acquired ammonia and ventilator associated pneumonia. The activity of meropenavorbactam on oxenzyme and metallobetalotamase is not good. And in addition, on the other non-fermentating gram-negatives, the pseudomonas and acinetobacter, probably the activity of meropenavorbactam is similar to the activity of meropenavorbactam alone. Thank you for the attention. Thank you for the great talk. Professor Mario Tombarello. Um, we're just waiting for some questions in the chat. Uh, but meanwhile, can I just 
get an idea from you. Um, you've presented all this sort of survival benefit and also clinical efficacy. Any downsides to the drug? The drug uh, has a good probability to have uh, clinical efficacy, of course. The cl clinical efficacy and survival sometimes are very similar. Of course, uh, if you consider clinical cure, clinical cure is different from mortality, but both are an indicator of a good efficacy of the drug. Got it. And uh, any um, concerns about the tissue penetration part about barbobactam? Like, does it go everywhere the, that the maripenem can go? At the level of the, of the lung, the penetration is uh, very good. We have seen uh, the, the data for the penetration in the epithelial line fluid. Probably is better than the penetration uh, reported for ceftazolimibactam or imipenorelibactam. Right. Sometimes we use uh, meropenem for hospital-acquired um, CNS infection. Uh, so cerebral, say, uh, ventriculitis. Um, yes. Does it go into the brain? Yes, I, I think uh, probably yes. There is nothing reported in the, in the medical literature at this time. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, because I don't have this drug from Hong Kong, uh, is it expensive? Of course. <laughs> Just like all the new drugs, uh, is, uh, is expensive, not more expensive than uh, ceftazolimibactam or uh, cefidericol and so on. Uh, Thank you. Um, well, there are no questions from the audience, uh, but I thank you very much for your time, uh, Professor Tamborello. Thank you to you. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay, so thank you very much, audience. Um, next, we then move on to Professor Matteo Bassetti, who uh, is a professor of infectious disease at Genova. He is the president of Italian Society of Anti-Infective Therapy, and he's going to be talking about remdesivir and novel antivirals and whether it's time uh, for them to shine. So many thanks for your kind invitation. My uh, task would be to talk about the role of antivirals in the management of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So these are my disclosures in the past five years, research grant advisor, consultant, and speaker. So what do we know about the COVID? COVID is classified in general in two progressive stages according to the severity. We have the first stage in which we have in general, typically a very high viral response phase. Uh, and this is the early phase of the disease. And then we have the stage two, that is uh, the, the stage in which you have in general hypoxia and, uh, and, and, and in which in general we have the hospital admission. And there is a relationship between the viral response and the inflammatory phase. And then we have the phase three, the stage three, in which there are more severe manifestations and in general patients are intubated or mechanically ventilated. And in these phases is the phase in which there is a very high inflammatory response phases. So actually there is a role for several different drugs in managing COVID-19. So we have uh, the pre-exposure prophylaxis with uh, the vaccine. Then we have the post-exposure prophylaxis with the monoclonal antibodies by subcutaneous way or the treatment for uh, outpatients 
treatment with monoclonal antibodies, but even for hospitalized patients. And then we have the antiviral, role of antivirals. And as you can see, we have actually oral antivirals that should be used as uh, in the outpatient setting, but also in hospitalized patients and uh, IV antivirals or, or also in uh, 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 patients hospitalized with severe form. And then obviously we have other drugs like steroids, IL-1 blockers or IL-6 blockers. So it's important to know that recently we published the Italian guidelines on management of uh, uh, COVID-19 with the two, two societies, the Italian Society of Anti-Infective Therapy and the Italian Society of Pulmonology, in which uh, we, you can see very well that uh, we gave uh, some recommendations. First of all, uh, lopinavir should not be administered to hospitalized patients, so there is not anymore any role for lopinavir uh, The same is regarding uh, rendesivir. Pending further results from large randomized clinical trial, administration of a five-day course of rendesivir should be considered in hospitalized patients with community requiring oxygen uh, supplementation. So in our guideline, the only drug recommended uh, to be used, the only antiviral to be used in uh, COVID-19 is uh, uh, remdesivir. Hydroxychloroquine should not be administered. And then we can discuss uh, other antiviral either should not be administered for treating COVID-19 in hospitalized patients, unless they are administered within randomized clinical trial. Obviously, these are recommendations for hospitalized patients, not for non-hospitalized patients. For non-hospitalized patients, I will uh, review the data at the end of this presentation. So what do we know about rendesivir? So rendesivir is a drug with a very high potent in vitro activity against coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, but also SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV. And favorable effects in the animal MERS model. And uh, we started using uh, Rendesivir in the early phase of COVID in the compassionate administration in the first phases of the COVID 19 pandemic. So the first trial for Rendesivir was the one published by Bagel in New England Journal of Medicine in October 2020, in which Rendesivir for 10 days has been compared with the placebo. And they have used in this study the, the clinical status ordinal scale uh, from one that was a patient with no limitation and not hospitalized to number eight that was considered the death. And then I invite you to consider particularly for critically ill patients, these two situations, hospitalized and requiring non-invasive ventilation and hospitalized on invasive mechanical ventilation or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, the ECMO. So the data are in the, this first trial were encouraging because they show, the data show a shorter time to recovery. You can see 10 days for endesivir compared to 15 days in placebo. And uh, what was important to see is that there is an advantage, particularly in patients with severe disease. So in patients with severe disease, the time to recovery, even more pronounced that uh, in patients with the moderate uh, disease. So, uh, and then when they analyzed the progression of disease was important to look that there was an important benefit in patients with low 
flow oxygen support, but even in high flow oxygen support. And you can see the reduction in the progression to ventilation or to death, particularly in these type of fashions, and also the incidence of the use of oxygen, high flow, and mechanically ventilation, lower in patients treated with the rendezvous. And in some patients, uh, Rendesivir was also able to reduce the mortality. You can see, particularly in, in this setting, there was protecting, particularly in patients with the uh, uh, low flow oxygen. Rendesivir was associated with a 70% significant reduction in mortality in this type of patient. So, uh, from this first study by Belgier, I think the data were quite encouraging for uh, the drug. Uh, so then the second trial was the one published by Goldman, in which they analyze uh, if uh, all the patients should be treated with five days or 10 days. And this was a comparison between five and 10 days. And at the end, the observed rates of clinical outcomes at day 14 were similar for five or for 10 days. And for this reason, the drug has been uh, finally approved for five days of treatment, not for 10 days. So you can have a five days course of uh, redesign. These are the two trials published in New England Journal of Medicine. Then there is a third trial that is uh, called the WHO Solidarity Trial that was developed by the WHO, but it was a very confused trial with a lot of arms. Uh, it was, uh, uh, was a phase two, three adaptive multicenter randomized open label trial uh, of the safe and efficacy of uh, uh, in COVID-19. Rendesivir, lopinaviritanavir, lopinaviritanavir interferon, hydroxychloroquine, very complicated, but the data were not so encouraging because looking at the data, they were in the solidarity published in 2020, uh, there was no impact of uh, rendesivir in uh, reducing the mortality. You can see the overall in both the patients in ventilated and in non-ventilated patients. So this was a negative trial and you can see the data published in New England Journal of Medicine. And at the end, there were no benefit in using rendezvous. Even the diamond was little b in, 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 didn't cross the line. And you know, for this reason, at least in this trial, there was not advantages in using rendezvous. Uh, then there are other studies, uh, this published in Lancet Infectious Diseases in uh, uh, 2021, and they include 157 participants assigned to Rendesivir plus standard of care or standard of care only. And the primary endpoint was clinical status at day 15, measured by the WHO seven-point ordinal scale. And you can see here the data of Rendesivir or the control arm, and you can see that uh, at the end there was a kind of advantage in a patient treated with the with the Rendesivir, particularly in the severe form. You can see the, the, the important difference in this other study. And then the last study is the discovery one, and a, in an exploratory subgroup analysis, the hazard for the composite endpoint of the new mechanical ventilation ECMO death was lower in the Rendesivir group than in the standard of care. And the median time from the onset of symptom to Rendesivir initiation was nine days. So there is, even from this study, important messages in favor of uh, Rendesivir. And we recently published our data of our uh, uh, 
institution in which we try to compare the two periods, the first and the second uh, COVID-19 wave uh, in, in my hospital. And as you can see, we increased significantly the use of remdesivir from the first wave to the second wave uh, from uh, around uh, less than 3% to close to 40% of the patient treated. And we were able to demonstrate, obviously, uh, based on the similar characteristic of the patients, similar uh, for severity, a reduction in mortality from 21% to 10%. So it was obviously not related only to rendesivir, but rendesivir and corticosteroids that were the two drugs that were increasing the use were able to uh, have a significant reduction in uh, mortality. So then uh, other studies is the, the one of uh, the called PINETRI study, uh, in which 526 non-hospitalized patients with COVID and high risk for progression. And the primary endpoint was COVID-19-related hospitalization. And, uh, and this is, again, uh, to compare remdesivir and the placebo group. And there was an advantage in using remdesivir, not only in hospitalized patients, but even in non-hospitalized patients. And you can see the data for remdesivir. And actually, remdesivir is approved not only for treating patients hospitalized, but even for treating patients non-hospitalized. The last two messages are regarding uh, oral antivirals, in particular, molnupiravir, that is the nucleoside analog. In the preclinical studies, the activity against coronavirus, including SARS-CoV-2, and in the phase two of 202 unvaccinated patients, time to viral RNA clearance was decreased in uh, molnupiravir compared to the placebo. And the other important data for molnupiravir come from the MOVE-OUT study, which the primary endpoint was the incident of hospitalization or death at day 29. And the monopiravir demonstrated to be superior in the, uh, the interim analysis. And the primary endpoint was 7.3% uh, uh, in the monopiravir arm and 14 in the placebo arm, incident of hospitalization of death. So for this reason, the monopiravir has been approved for be, uh, to be used in non-hospitalized patients. And here you can see the couple of mile analysis of monopiravir and the uh, placebo. Uh, in, in, in the, the second oral antiviral available is, is near uh, matrelvir ritonavir, that is called Paxlovid, and is an inhibitor of the main, protea, protea, main protease, is a, a protease inhibitor. Ritonavir has the role as just a booster, and there is a potent in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2 and reductions SARS-CoV-2 lung titer in the mouse model. And uh, even the data for Paxlovid uh, uh, has been published in New England Journal of Medicine. And you can see here the data for the placebo and for the Paxlovid. So the result was very interesting because treatment, treatment of symptomatic COVID-19 with Paxlovid resulted in a risk of progression to severe COVID-19 that was 89% lower than the risk with placebo without evidence safety concerns. So for this reason, these two drugs were approved. And this is uh, the analysis regarding the death or regarding the adverse events. Again, there were lower death and lower adverse events in patients uh, treated with uh, Paxlov. So uh, this is uh, an overview regarding the antivirals. And maybe in the future, we will have uh, other antivirals available. 
uh, I would like to thank uh, all of my collaborators for doing a, a great job in the past two years in, uh, in managing uh, COVID-19 patients, even with the antivirus. Thank you very much for your kind uh, attention. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Pacelli, for the great talk. Um, we're just waiting for some questions from the audience, uh, from the chat, but uh, maybe I'll start off. One of, I'm, I'm an intensivist from Hong Kong, and one of the things that I'm seeing now in the ICU is very strange organizing pneumonia or some patients who are immunosuppressed and they have prolonged shedding of the virus, let's say a month, two months, and they have persistent respiratory failure and they've been given the course of antivirals. Do you have any recommendations on whether to give another course of antiviral in these patients who just doesn't seem to be able to shed off the virus? Yes, I think uh, you're right. So we did that uh, not recently because actually the situation uh, is much better compared to just uh, three, four months ago. But we did sometimes uh, in an individualized way. I mean, uh, I cannot say that the, we can uh, recommend for all the patients, but case by case, if you have a patient in which you have the, the viremia, still viremic after the normal course of remdesivir, I think these are cases to be uh, managed eventually with the second or even eventually the third course of uh, antivirus. So we did that also in combination with the uh, or uh, other antivirals, so particularly in immunocompromised patients. So we combine remdesivir plus Paxlovid, for instance, and uh, we also combine not recently, but uh, uh, during the Delta uh, spread with the monoclonal antibodies. So remdesivir plus monoclonal antibodies. So again, these are cases that are obviously uh, not labeled by the, by the, I mean, by the uh, agency of drugs, but I think uh, Case by case, you can do that. I think uh, particularly when there is, a, I mean, we can consider not a failure, but when the, the patient continues to have shedding of virus, these are particular situations in which we probably uh, would probably use uh, antivirals. Thank you. Um, and one of the questions I had was, uh, my understanding of the literature was that a lot of the trials looked at um, time from symptom and uh, using that as a indication to enroll into trials. And one of the problems we have now, uh, particularly with the vaccinated group, is a lot of them are asymptomatic, perhaps for quite a long time, and then they develop respiratory failure a bit later, which is slightly different to the original pandemic, uh, what it looked like. Do you have any recommendations on how to prescribe antiviral, say, against an objective measure like uh, perhaps the CT value? So in general, you know, the experience we have with the antivirals, I mean, in general, regarding particularly the oral antivirals, were used based on the time to symptom develop. So, and you should use this drug uh, in the first days after the symptom onset, uh, no more than two, three days. Otherwise, they're they going to be not working anymore because we know that the, 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 the IGAR, viral load is present in the first days after the symptom onset. So this is in 
in the general population. So then obviously, again, I think it's really depending on the case. So if you have the patient that develop uh, symptoms after 10, 15 days, after he become positive, I think, or he or she become positive, I think you should uh, decide based on the patient and maybe you can use the antiviral. So, because actually we don't have a, uh, too many options. Unfortunately, uh, sotrovimab that was very active against Omicron 1 is not so active against the Omicron 2. So we don't have the possibility of using a monoclonal antibiotic, at least empirically, because uh, uh, Omicron 2 is predominant. So in this scenario, I believe that Rendesivir IV remain the only potential options for reducing the viral load. And uh, I really believe even if the, the times of symptoms of the time of after the beginning of the uh, of the positivity of the swab is longer than five days, maybe you can decide based on the on the symptoms. And obviously on the sign of the CD scan also. Thank you. There's a question from the audience and um, he or she is asking, what's the best way to document shedding? Do antigen tests suffice? In general, the viremia, because, you know, if you have the positive swab or, uh, I mean, a measurement of the viral load, because uh, this is obviously the best way. So in general, we do that not only in, 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 in blood, but we can do eventually in the, even in the BAL. So measurement of the viral load, and uh, which is the number of cycle at the, at the, at the PCR test. Thank you. There are no other further questions. So I think we'll uh, thank Professor Bassetti for a great talk and then we'll move on to the next speaker. Um, the next speaker is Professor Anna Gales, who's Professor of Infectious Diseases at University of Federal at the Cipello. Uh, she is um, uh, a great um, researcher in molecular epidemiology of multidrug resistant uh, bacteria and also uh, interest in in vitro activity of new antimicrobials. She's going to talk to us about colostin and fosomycin. Uh, and her question to us is whether it's the end of an era or the requisition of potent drugs. So over to you, uh, Professor Gales. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for the organization for the invitation and thank you very much for the kind introduction. And here are my disclosures. And I would like to start my presentation just remember about the new antimicrobials that were recently approved for gram-negatives, for treatment of gram-negative infections. Most of these agents are combinations of beta-lactams with beta-lactamase inhibitors. They will target uh, carbapenem-resistant enterobacter alis. Very few will have activity against carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, alias none of the new combinations né, with beta-lactamase and beta-lactamase inhibitors have activity against carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. And none of them also will have activity against, against MBL producers. Unfortunately, as expected, we have observed the rapid emergence of resistance against the new agents. So the new agents, as soon as you introduce them in the clinical practice, we will observe the emergence of resistance as expected. In this context, I hope uh, after the end of this presentation to convince you that there is still a clinical role for polymyxins and phosphomycins, which are old agents that were developed before the current clinical uh, standards that we use nowadays. So polymyxins, they have available only polymyxin B and polymyxin E, that's also called colicine, that are available for clinical use. 
they have a unique mechanism of action. The main mechanism of action, they will displace calcium magnesium that are close to lipid A of the LPS in the outer membrane. They will cause a break of the outer membrane protein and they will enter in this break and via a self-way pathway and will act in the inner membrane and they will destabilize the inner membrane. They will have also an activity against inhibiting the NGA2. And they have also nowadays another mechanism that's a vesicle vesicle uh, uh, mechanism. Polymyxin B is also known by activity of endotoxin. Uh, they have in vitro activity against acinetobacter, pseudomonas, E. coli, and Klebsiella. Uh, polymyxin B and, and colicin, they are very similar to each other. They have a very common chemical structure. They have a very common spectrum of activity. What they are really different is the pharmacokinetics. The drugs are really different. But otherwise, the other parents, even mechanisms of resistance are very similar. They are the reference technique for antimicrobial susceptibility of polymyxins, according to CLSI and LCAST, is broad microdilution. And the results are influenced by many factors, by the cation content of the Miller-Hinton agar, is influenced by the quality of the, the plastic trays that are used to run the broad microdilution. So we have many problems with the antimicrobial susceptibility testing of polymyxins. We do also have problems with PKPD issues. Concentration of polymyxins in serum are highly variable and may be inadequate for effective bactericidal activity. They have a narrow therapeutic window. To have like a, a rapid bactericidal effect, I will have for severe infections a concentration needed around two micrograms per ml to have a reduction of one log to 10 uh, bacterial count. And this is also the concentration that's very close to, to have nephrotoxicity. We have also a problem with the concentration in the pulmonary epithelial lining fluid. It's very common, it's very, uh, many times when I prescribe the, the, the common regimes for polymyxins, I cannot reach the adequate concentration in the pulmonary uh, to have a treatment of pulmonary infections. We have also observed a clinical failure, emergence of resistance to polymyxin monotherapy. We have a heteroresistant hetero population. And with fosfomycin, we have fosfomycin trometamol, that's the oral formulation that's available in most countries of the world. But the fosfomycin disodium, that's the intravenous formulation, is not available in all countries in the world. For example, it's not available in the United States, it's not available in Brazil, and we hope to have them so. The, it has also a unique mechanism of action. It blocks uh, more one activity leading to the cell death, uh, it inhibits the peptoglycan synthesis. It's a very safe drug. It's, it has a reliable in vitro activity here in this slide because in my presentation I focus on gram negative bacillus. It has activity against Enterobacterialis. It has activity in drug resistant isolates, but it does have activity against Staphylococci, Staphylococci aureus. It has activity against Enterococci. The antimicrobial susceptibility test in the reference is the agar dilution technique. And we have only breakpoints for disc diffusion for E. coli and citrobactin according to the Eucast breakpoints. Right now, there is open consultation for Eucast for the evaluation of the fosfomycin breakpoints. 
Phosphomycin is a small, a small molecule. It has activity in biofilms. It also has activity against bacterial, intracellular bacteria. It has immunotolatory activity. It has been speculated. But we also have, on the other hand, the emergence of in vitro resistance. Many times, it's very easy to select for resistant isolates in vitro, but it's very difficult to, to not very difficult, but it's difficult to find them in the clinical setting because we believe that these isolates that are resistant that were selected in vitro, they don't, they have a lower bacterial fitness. They don't resist like they, they have the, 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 their metabolism is not so good to survive. Phosphomycin was recently evaluated compared to ceftriaxone and meropenem for treatment of bacteria urinary tract infections due to multidrug resistant E. coli. So it was the idea was phosphomycin is it no inferior to ceftriaxone or meropenem? It was ceftriaxone or meropenem. It, it was a, a open clinical trial randomized and the patients were randomized one to one. One patient would receive phosphomycin four grams every six hours, and the other group would receive ceftriaxone or meropenem. They would receive meropenem if the isolate was resistant to ceftriaxone. And the primary outcome was the combination of the clinical and microbiological curse five to seven days after the end of treatment. And they were expecting a non-inferiority uh, non margin of 7%. However, uh, the phosphomycin response was 68.6% compared to 78%. And it did not reach the no inferiority margin that they were expecting. So in this study, the phosphomycin did not show to be no inferior to ceftriaxone and meropenem. In addition, there was a number of patients that were withdrawn because of higher adverse effects. So it, it's unfortunately, it was not a positive outcome, but at least in select, very selected few patients, maybe it can be used as an alternative therapy for carbapenem sparing regimes. In the IDSA guidelines, I want to cite where they cite polymyxin and phosphomycin. Phosphomycin was not cited by the IDSA guideline because it's not available in the US, but polymyxin was cited as an alternative therapy for treatment of urinary tract infection caused by carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis or difficult to treat, treat pseudomonas aeruginosa. Because in this case, it's used as a urinary tract, cholestine was preferred over polymyxine because the concentration of cholestine are higher in the urinary tract than polymyxine B. For therapy of treatment of carbapenem-resistant enterobacterial infections, for mild infections, they recommend monotherapy, and polymyxin B as an alternative therapy, except if it was a urinary tract infection. In this case, you should prescribe colistin. For moderate or severe infections, they recommended the use of combination therapy, but they, uh, they advise not to combine with rifampicin and carbapenem, despite having like in vitro synergy studies showing that there is a good combination. This is because you have two randomized clinical trials that we can question them about the, the results, but they show that there was no benefit combined rifampicin and carbapenem with polymyxin for treatment of crab infections. If you look, just a quick reminder, uh, uh, the last slide I, I talk about the IDSA guidance document, it's not a guideline. 
Here, I'm going to talk about the ISKIMID guideline. This is a guideline. The other one was just a guidance document to guide doctors in the US how to prescribe antibiotics for these difficult to treat pat pathogens. Here in the ISKIMID guidelines, it, the polymyxins and phosphomycins were cited for the treatment of carbapenem resistant Enterobacterialis, carbapenem resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa and severe infections, and carbapenem. Uh, Netobacter infections, all of them for severe infections. They recommend for CRE, they recommend uh, polymyxin or phosphomycin only if the non of uh, the new beta-lactamase inhibitors combinations are available, or if there is susceptibility only to polymyxins, aminoglycosides, or phosphomycin. In this case, for example, an MBL producing isolates. If I have an isolate that's producer of methyl beta-lactamase producer, maybe it be, can be susceptible only to polymyxin. For carbapenem resistant pseudomonas original severe infections, they recommend to use polymyxin uh, only if there is uh, in, in vitro susceptibility. And we also should combine. They, they, this agent should not be used as monotherapy. They recommended as they to be used as combination therapy if there is susceptibility in vitro. For carbapenem resistance netobacter infections, they also recommend combination therapy, including, including the two in vitro active antibiotics. In this case, because phosphomycin has no activity, they recommend polymyxins combined with another agent. They also recommend not to prescribe rifampicin or carbapenems for treatment of crab infections. I just would like to call attention that every time that you prescribe polymyxin and phosphomycin, you should use at least two drugs uh, in, for the treatment of the patient, mainly if we also would love to use if they have susceptibility in vitro to both drugs. I just would like to call your attention to the strength of the recommendation. The strength of recommendation is conditional, and the level of, the level of evidence is very low for carbapenem, pseudomonas aeruginosa, and crab infections, and the level of evidence for CRE is moderate. I would like just to mention that's just a, a systematic review of clinical studies. We have other studies. I just want to cite this the study that was conducted by Dr. Savold, Savoldi, Alessia Savoldi, that they, they, they had a systematic review and they conclude that they have they found methodological issues and bias in the existing studies that's impossible to conclude what's the best the strategic therapy. It's impossible at this moment to affirm that monotherapy is, super, monotherapy is superior to combination therapy or vice versa when you are treating CREB, CRE, or carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas originals infections. So at this moment, we do not know if monotherapy or combination therapy should be prescribed for treatment of these very difficult treat, uh, treat infections. Just, uh, just uh, like a systematic review and meta-analysis that consideration only time key studies and PKPD models uh, that evaluated the combination uh, of antibiotics that showed high synergistic rates. So we have the many, many studies that have shown that colistin combined with rifampicin or with carbapenems, with bactrin, or even polymyxin with phosphomycin can have like a, a synergistic activity in vitro. So 
I don't, I am not completely like, I don't, because combination therapy depends very much of the isolate that I am looking for, that I'm testing, because depending on the mechanism of resistance, one combination can be synergistic or not. Uh, I also would like to call attention that because of the rapid emergence to the new agents, we have also uh, authors that have combined phosphomycin or phos uh, with ceftazimabactam, ceftalozonatazibactam to prevent the emergence of resistance to the new agents. We have also the combination of colistin and phosphomycin against MBL producers. Just an example, this is the carbapenem resistance rates found among gram-negative bacilli, uh, uh, causing central catheter-associated bloodstream infections in patients hospitalized in ICU. Each bar represents one year. So you can see that we have very high rates of carbapenem resistance in Brazil. So just to have an idea, I don't uh, the, about the new agents that were approved in the US and are available in the US and the Europe are not available in Brazil. And I believe that's the situation in many Latin American countries and also in many other countries of the world. So by April 2022, we had only approved and for clinical use ceftalozantazobactam, ceftazimabactam, and delafloxacin. So in this way, I do not have the new options to prescribe for these infections. So in our lives, polymyxin B or colistin are still used as uh, a therapy, a first-line therapy for treatment of carbapenem resistance netobacter infections, for example. I just would like to finish my presentation with like many quick messages that polymycin in, in places where we have the new available therapies, polymyxin have been regarded as an alternative, alternative therapeutic agent due to their toxicity. Nobody questions that they are very nephrotoxic drugs. They have also neurotoxicity, but they do also have a good clinical uh, in vitro activity and clinical uh, activity. Uh, it has been also, also as an alternative agent for CRE, especially in places like Brazil that, where the new betalactamines or betalactamase inhibitor combinations are not widely available, or you have only in vitro susceptibility to polymyxins, like in the case of the MBL producing isolates. Uh, they have been recommended as a first-line agent for treatment of se severe, severe carbapenem infections. Nowadays, we have cefidrocol, but cefidrocol has a warned in the, because of the increase in the number of the patients who have died uh, using cefidrocol, we are still debating if it was because of the severity of the infection or if it was because of the drug. Uh, they also, it's very important to know that we have new molecules of polymyxin that are currently under development to have like to have the, bad, the best characteristics of the molecule. That's the high in vitro activity against uh, Riley resistant pathogens, but they are, we'd like to have molecules with less toxicity. And IV phosphomycin, I know that the JAMA article showed that it was not inferior to ceftriaxone or meropenem, but maybe in very selected cases, we could use uh, phosphomycin as an alternative therapy for patients with urinary tract infections caused by susceptible isolates as a carbapenem sparing regime. 
So I would like to thank you all, and I hope to convince you that there is still a role for polymyxin B and fosfomycin in the clinical practice. Thank you very much for your talk, and in the interest of time, I think we'll move on, but thank you very much for your great talk. Our next speaker is uh, Professor Mihaela Lipsi. Uh, she is a professor of infectious diseases from Romania, and she's worked on procalcitonins uh, since her times as a PhD student. And uh, from my understanding, she's a fanatic about procalcitonin, so I'm sure we're in for a treat on her talk about procalcitonin. So over to you, Professor Lipsi. Thank you very much. Uh, in a few 10 minutes, I will try to convince you that procalcitonin it's very useful for uh, antimicrobial stewardship and also has a good impact on outcome. Here are my disclosure. And uh, antimicrobial resistance is one of top 10 um, health threats facing uh, uh, humanity and is responsible for important deaths, disabilities, prolonged illness, longer hospital stay, need for more expensive medicine and financial challenges. And the World Health Organization uh, said that one way to help countries strengthen preparedness for emergencies in 2021 is to combat drug resistance. Drug-resistant infection cause around 700,000 deaths worldwide each year, and we expect that till 2050 will be 300 million deaths. Antimicrobial resistance is a natural phenomenon, but it's man-made. And actually, the most important cause is represented by the misuse and overuse of antimicrobials in humans, animals, and plants. How can we reduce this antimicrobial resistance? Maybe if we find a biomarker that is specific for active bacterial infection and offer us a proper antimicrobial therapy decision-making. And such a biomarker could be procalcitonin. Procalcitonin is a prohormone of calcitonin. The normal values in plasma is under 0.5 nanogram per milliliter. Procalcitonin increase in two to four hours after the onset of sepsis, uh, peaks at uh, 24, 48 hours, and has a half lifetime of 24 hours. Procalcitonin was described as a diagnostic marker of sepsis in 1993. And now we know that low levels or high levels of procalcitonin can discriminate between viral and bacterial infections. And surviving sepsis campaign guidelines from 2021 acknowledge that a low procalcitonin level may help physicians in a decision to discontinue antimicrobials. In this way, it's possible to do a personalized treatment decision and decrease rates of antibiotic prescription, shorten antibiotic exposure, and lower mortality. A PCT-guided approach can be used in various patients, in outpatients, to reduce antibiotic prescription, especially when PCT is low, for example, for acute respiratory tract infection or for exacerbation of COPD, or in critical ill patients with sepsis or severe bacterial infections like pneumonia, or in emergency department for positive and differential diagnosis of sepsis. 
There are some situations in which inflammation is very important and physiologically procalcitonin is decreased even without infection, such as in trauma or surgery or neonates or postpartum woman and so on. But there are also some situations in which we have false negative results, meaning that we have infection without increasing of PCT. Such situations are the onset of uh, uh, sepsis in the first hours. Chronic infections such as endocarditis, osteomyelitis, prosthetic device graft infections, some localized infections or infections due to atypical bacteria. Michael Meissner proposed an update on PCT measurements in 2014, he proposed some cutoffs uh, for which we introduce or we discourage uh, antibiotic treatment, and also for patients with high values of PCT at the beginning for which we introduce antibiotic treatment, we can monitor these patients by measurements of uh, PCT every 24 or 48 hours, and uh, withdraw the antibiotics when PCT is low or continue uh, the antibiotics if PCT continue to be high or change the antibiotics if PCT increased. There were a lot of randomized uh, trials that try to show uh, that a PCT-guided approach could reduce antimicrobial use, could be uh, uh, useful to reduce uh, adverse outcomes and to reduce mortality. And maybe the biggest uh, meta-analysis is a meta-analysis uh, published by Schutz and collaborators in uh, 2017. It's an update of their meta-analysis from 2012, in which they try to uh, show that for uh, a procalcitonin-guided uh, approach, of uh, patients with uh, uh, respiratory infections, it's possible to reduce mortality, treatment failure, antibiotic-related side effects, and uh, antimicrobial uh, uh, exposure. Actually, they show in their meta-analysis that mortality is lower. Uh, also, the antibiotic-related side effects and the, the exposure to antibiotics is lower for patients with PCD-guided antibiotics. But the treatment failure, the duration of hospitalization, and the duration of hospitalization into the ICU was the same, not significant difference between uh, the two groups. Experts propose an international consensus on optimized clinical use of PCT-guided antibiotic stewardship for patients with severe illness in ICU. And for this, they propose a cutoff of 0.5. Below this cutoff, the recommendation of antibiotics is only based on clinical judgment. And if we start antibiotics, it's necessary to uh, measure PCT after 24 or 48 hours, and if the value continues to be low, we stop the antibiotics. If PCT is above 0 0.5, the recommendation of antibiotics uh, is uh, uh, high, and uh, for these patient, uh, patients, it's important to measure uh, uh, procalcitonin every 24 48 hours, and if the value decreases by 80% or below 0 0.5, we can stop the antibiotics. What happened in the real world? Actually, it's a study, a retrospective cohort study 
published by Broyles, Michael Broyles, uh, who show us that, for example, for low respiratory tract infection, PCT testing occurred in 18% of hospitalized patients. And if we discuss about concordance, meaning uh, initiation, uh, initiating or uh, or uh, withdrawing antibiotics according with a PCT value of 0.25, we observe that antibiotic concordance appear only in 55% of cases. Clinicians continue to prioritize clinical judgment over uh, initial PCT levels when prescribing antibiotics for patients with suspected low respiratory tract infection. Uh, um, review of guidelines published between 2009 and 2018 regarding diagnostic treatment, diagnostic and treatment for sepsis and respiratory infection shows that only 12 guidelines recommend use of PCT or stated that it can be useful, but none uh, offer information regarding how often should PCT uh, used or how many measurements are necessary. Here uh, are the results of a uh, uh, randomized trial published by uh, Evangelos Jamarelos Burbulis in uh, 2021 regarding long-term infection-associated adverse events in sepsis. As, and as you can see, for patients with PCT guidance, uh, the uh, death rate and also the, uh, the adverse events are lower, fewer, in patients with PCT guidance. If we discuss about COVID-19, uh, we know that we used a lot of antibiotics for patients with COVID-19. Actually, Michael May published a study in 2021 in which he included almost 2,500 patients with COVID-19. Uh, these patients were followed uh, for uh, bacterial complications such as bacteriuria, bacteremia, and bacterial pneumonia. And uh, 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 Michael May showed that only 6.1% of these patients developed uh, community-acquired infections. Also for these patients, PCT was useful because PCT was significantly higher in patients with community-acquired infection compared with patients without community-acquired infections. And actually, a cutoff value of 0.25 is, uh, has a very high negative predictive value for bacterial infections, while uh, a, a cutoff value of 0.5 has a, a acceptable specificity for bacterial uh, complications. Take-home message, antibiotics can be avoided or the duration of therapy reduced with, without increasing mortality. In a broad range of acute respiratory infections, patients with non-elevated PCT levels. PCT-guided antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infection offers a personalized approach to patients more likely to have an acute bacterial infection. The PCT thresholds above which antibiotics are indicated can be adjusted for lower and higher risk settings and implementation barriers include clinician acceptance and access to PCT. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Lipsy, for a great talk. Um, we have a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, the first one is, 
we have seen an impressive increase in PCT in critically ill patients with COVID-19 who don't have bacterial infection. Uh, has anyone else observed this and, or perhaps have you observed this and any idea why? Yes. Uh, we also observed that the PCT, especially in ICU patients, could be high. And uh, uh, also, uh, Professor May, in uh, his uh, study, uh, observed that it's possible to have high values also in patients without proved infection. Uh, of course, PCT increase in high inflammation. And for patients with uh, with uh, uh, with uh, uh, with critical, actually with critical COVID-19, the inflammation is high. Uh, the inflammation is responsible for the critical uh, evolution. And uh, that's why we could have PCT with high values in uh, ICU. Maybe in ICU, PCT is not so valuable uh, for patients with COVID-19. Uh, for But we know, actually, at least in uh, our hospital, uh, the, uh, the uh, use of uh, antibiotics is uh, very important, not in, only in ICU, but in all other worlds. Thank you. Uh, one next question is, um, why don't we use PCT in postpartum patients? Uh, because uh, in postpartum patients, uh, PCT is increase due to its physiologically increase due to inflammation so it's not a proof of bacterial infection thank you i think that answers all the questions um professor lipsy uh, once again thank you very much for your great thank you very much so thank you everyone who are tuning into session five that draws to an end now um, thank you very much for your time uh, we just have a couple of slides we'd like to share with the audience uh, before we end the session. Once again, we'd like to we'd like to thank all the sponsors for um, sponsoring this wonderful Congress uh, and give, giving us an opportunity during this pandemic to get together and talk about infection and sepsis. And of course, just a plug uh, to let everyone know and also to let your friends know who could not join us today that all of the sessions will be uploaded to YouTube and also Apple Podcasts in due time. They will start uploading um, on uh, May the 3rd, and they will be uploaded in sequence, uh, I think, every other week or every two weeks. So watch that space. And of course, um, a plug for uh, the Global Sepsis Alliance and also um, for the regional alliances. Please join us um, and on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and also Instagram. And don't forget to sign the World Declaration on sepsis. And last but not least, please join us in thanking all of our speakers who've got, given us wonderful topics and talks and uh, definitely very stimulating session. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the 2022 World Sepsis Congress Spotlight possible. Session 6 will be available next Tuesday, June 7, 2022. Until then, stay safe and thanks for joining.